Why is it so quiet? So here we are. We are in Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to look at the characters involved in the crucifixion. So a little bit of the background <clears throat> is we are entering into what is traditionally known as Holy Week. It's known as Passion Week. It's known as Easter Week. And none of those designations are taken from the scriptures. They're just used to describe events that are in the scripture as we seek to reenact them and to learn about them, to remember them. And so um, some people try to be biblically correct and say you shouldn't use any of those terms. Who cares about the terms? Um, what we're coming to is the, the week of the resurrection. On next Sunday, we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On Friday, they celebrate the, the death of Jesus. But Jesus probably didn't die on Friday. He probably died on Thursday, unless any of you can get three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday. But... Uh, <clears throat> doesn't work that way. But somehow, church tradition put it there. <clears throat> and so we're looking at that last week, passion. It's sort of interesting. They call it the passion of Christ. Like, what does that mean? Actually, the word passion, the way that it was used originally, means suffering. So this is the week that we talk about the suffering of Jesus. And we're going to look at all of the characters that surround the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27. We'll do most of the chapter, not the entire chapter, but we will do most of it. <clears throat> and I like to call this chapter, Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here. Because all of the characters are here. It's like a homecoming. Is anybody, anybody old enough to have gone to a high school reunion? Anybody go to a high school reunion? Yeah, I'm going to go this year, and they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to grandfather me in because uh, <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't graduate. In fact, I never even went. <laughs> but, but the year, the year that I would have, and here's, this is crazy. This is crazy because we're trying to figure out, like, is this the year I would have graduated? So we were all saying, yes, this is the year. So, uh, so I will go there. And it will be hail, hail, the gang's all here. It'll be a homecoming. It will be a reunion. I'm sure at my age, they will give out name tags. That's so you can recognize the, are you? Is that you? <laughs> or maybe we're getting old enough as to remind us of who we are. Oh. Yes, yes, who I am. I'm going to tell you a high school graduation story before we get into this. <clears throat> I was doing a funeral, and I was there way early, and um, I was talking to the funeral director, and he told me he just got back from his 50th, uh, his 50th high school reunion. And he said, the guy that we elected most successful was a cab driver. And he said what happened to this guy was when he got out of high school, he went down to New York City and he started to drive a cab. And in the day, he got what they call a medallion. Anybody know about this in New York? You used to have to have a medallion to drive a cab. And I think the medallions were controlled by the mob. But anyway, you had to, you had to get this medallion. And he had one. So um, he drove the cab. And they said what he did was every... Every year in the summer for July and August, he would rent out his medallion to somebody else, maybe college kids or something. <clears throat> and he said what he did was every year for 50 years, he went to another country and lived off of that money that was being brought in by his medallion. And he said this guy lived in 50 different countries for two months um, over the course of the last 50 years. And he said he would go into a town that was not necessarily a typical tourist town, and he would just settle down there to just see how people there lived. And he said, so when we heard that we voted him the most successful guy in our 50 years, he said, the rest of us, all we did was start businesses and industry and become attorneys and become physicians. And this guy, <laughs> 50 different countries in 50 years. So there's a high school reunion story. And we're looking at a reunion story where everybody is here. All of the players are here. 
And so let's start with these players. We'll just jump right in and look at the players. And this is also, Rachel said she likes to play, get to know the worship team. This is a Where's Waldo game. Anybody know who Waldo is? Anybody ever do Where's Waldo? Anyone at all? It's the book where you have to like find Waldo in there. Find yourself in uh, this passage here. So here we go. Chapter 27. Hail, hail, the gang's all here. Everybody is here. And this is, <clears throat> this is, anybody know who painted that picture? Rembrandt. Who said Rembrandt? All right. You get, uh, you get the prize of acknowledgement uh, this morning. We acknowledge that you, uh, very good. <laughs> very good. And and who is the guy, who's the guy in the, now that's a period picture because that is not what ancient Israel looked like at all. And that is not what Israelites would have looked like at all. But does anybody know who the guy in the little painter's beanie is in the, in the who is it? It's Rembrandt. That's right. Who said that? You also get acknowledgement number two. So uh, Rembrandt painted himself in the crucifixion. Why did he paint himself in the crucifixion? Because he understood that why did Jesus die and who killed Jesus? We did it. He died for our sin. And so Rembrandt paints himself <clears throat> into the picture. So let's see who else is here. So we're entering into this week that's traditionally called Holy Week, Passion Week, Easter Week. And here's who we're going to meet first. Verse 1, chapter 27. Early in the morning, all, because they had been up all night long interrogating Jesus. The religious leaders had him in a house. They were interrogating him. They were trying to find something wrong with him. They want to get rid of him. And he's up all night long in this religious trial that has no basis in truth, no basis in reality. They should have not done it, but they're up all night long with him. So early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. Wow. Is that what religious leaders do when they go behind closed doors? Uh, different churches have different ways of governing themselves. Some have elders, some have boards, some have deacons, some have just pastors that, that lead them. And so when they go behind closed doors and have those meetings, you hear that they're having, they're having an elders meeting on Tuesday. What, what do they do in those elders meetings? Um, they plot how to kill people. I mean, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> this is insane. It's just absolutely insane. These are the religious leaders and they have no compassion. They have no pity. They have no mercy. They don't care what the people think. They're going to do the thinking for the people. And so this today is what we would memorialize as what's called Palm Sunday. This is in the last uh, week of the life and ministry of Jesus. This is the day he would come on a donkey into Jerusalem. And when he came, they were singing Hosanna, which means save now. And it says, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law, when they saw the wonderful things Jesus was doing, and they saw the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were angry that the children were worshiping Jesus. They were angry that they were singing to Jesus. And so what did they do? You go a little bit further back in Matthew's gospel. And it says that the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, who are the elders of the people? You see, there's the priests, that's the religious class and the religious group, and they're the ones that everybody would know, they're the most visible ones and the ones everybody knows what they do. But who are the elders of the people? Well, in the ancient world and even in many tribal situations, the elders are the elders. Well, how do you get to be an elder in that situation? You're just an elder. Uh, and so we know that a little bit because we live around tribal peoples and and who are the elders in the tribes? The elders are the elders. They're the ones that have been there forever. Everybody knows who they are. If you're part of that tribe, you know who the elders are. Nobody needs to tell you who the elders are. And, and the elders have influence. So here you have the religious authority and the people with influence. And they're all assembled together at the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. And they're plotting to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. Crazy. And so they're united in their accusation. It says that the whole group got together, and I don't know if they were using Robert's rules of order or what, you know, but they were all like, 
I make the motion that Judas betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and he can kiss him and then we can go get him. I second that emotion, you know. All in favor? Aye. All opposed? Hmm. You know, and so, and so these guys all agree together to kill Jesus. And, um, and one of the things they're going to do, it says in, in Luke's gospel, is they're going to go to the authorities and say that Jesus opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar and that he claims to be a king. And this is going to be the reason they're going to bring him to Pilate. And so it's the blindness of fanatical religion. How do you become a religious fanatic? Because these people are fanatically religious. They're blind. Their religion has blinded them. The way that you become a religious fanatic is to put yourself into a bubble where all you're hearing is the voices of the other people in that bubble and hearing your own voice resonate. And it doesn't happen just with religion. It can happen with anything. You just get yourself in that bubble, and those are the only voices you listen to. And so they're listening to each other, and they're going crazy. They have flipped a lid. They have blown a gasket. So, um, so they do that, and then, but they can't kill Jesus because they don't have the power of capital punishment. Now, Rome has that power of capital punishment. They kill people all over the place. It doesn't, doesn't matter. They, they're totally unaccountable, these governors and these rulers. They just kill people. So, so they bring him to Pilate. We'll talk some more about Pilate in a moment. But he's sort of the politically correct compromiser. You see, what was going on in the day, to get the picture here, is that Judea, where the Jewish community lived, had been conquered by Rome. In fact, much of the world had been conquered by Rome. And Rome is ruling in what now would be Europe and Asia, Asia Minor, as it was called, Northern Africa. And so they would put governors over particular areas. And so Pilate is the governor over Judea. Now, Judea is a hard place to govern because these Hebrew people, they just, they do not want to be ruled by Rome at all all. And so if you're the governor there, you're constantly struggling with them. In fact, Jesus was talking one time about being under bondage and the leaders replied, we've never been under bondage to anybody. Well, yeah, you're under bondage to Rome. So although they were a conquered people inside, they were not a conquered people. So something to be admired about that, I guess, right? Just, uh, you know, I can't be conquered. You can put me in a cave. You can put me in a cell. You can put me in a box, you know, but you can't take me. And so that's who they were. So Pilate is going to declare Jesus innocent at least three times, and he's going to try to release him. So the problem with Pilate, and maybe you want to put yourself in this category. I don't know who you are, wh which one you are. Maybe you're a religious fanatic. Maybe you're like Pilate. Uh, Pilate knew the right choice. And he chose the wrong one. Ever done that? I never have, but I heard about some people who did in a counseling session one time. So, um, yeah, you know the right thing and you do the wrong thing. Well, that's Pilate. And, he, and, he, and one big mistake he made was he didn't listen to his wife. But that's a whole other thing. That was, that was for yesterday, and, you know, so we're on a whole new track right now. That was uh, when they did the marriage thing. So... So the next person that enters in, hail, hail, the gang is, is all here. Everybody's got the name tags on. The next one we meet is uh, Judas. And so when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I have sinned. I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Now notice this that Judas is calling Jesus innocent. If anybody knew whether Jesus was innocent or not innocent, it would be Judas. Judas was with this guy for three years, 24-7 sometimes. He saw Jesus in all kinds of stressful situations. He saw Jesus in joyous situations. He saw Jesus at parties. He saw Jesus with people. He said, this guy's innocent. This guy's innocent. I betrayed innocent blood. And so um, the religious leaders said, what's that to us? 
That's your responsibility. We don't care. So what? Well, they had paid him the 30 pieces of silver. They plotted with him. They told him what to say. They told him how to do it. Verse 5, so Judas threw the money in the, in the temple and left, and then he went away and he hung himself. And the chief priest picked up the coins and they said, it's against the law, the ceremonial law, the religious law. It's against the law to put this into the treasury because it's blood money. Well, it came from them. They took the money and gave it to him. And they're like, well, we can't, put, we can't use this money in the treasury. We can't use this money for the church building program. This is blood money. These guys are religious fanatics. They've lost it. They've flipped their lid. They've blown a gasket. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Pretty good thing, right? People that don't have any place to be buried and poor people, indigenous people. So, you know, some place to bury them. That's nice. So that's why it's called the field of blood to this day. But it also was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied about this particular incident. He said they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set before the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord has had commanded. And so Judas is one of those people who wants to be rich. We're going to look at another rich man in a minute. So there's nothing wrong with being rich. Um, what, what Paul wrote to uh, Timothy was people that want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many harmful and, and, and foolish uh, things that bring ruin. You know, what Judas would do to be rich is wrong. Not his rich people. We'll see one in a moment. And he was a follower of Jesus. It's okay. It's just how you get it. And what happened with Judas was the chief priests and the scribes, it tells us in, in Luke's gospel, is that they were seeking how they're going to put Jesus to death. They're afraid of the people because the people like Jesus. It says that Satan enters Judas, the one called Iscariot. And he went away, he discusses with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray them. And you know what it says in Luke after he talked with them? It says they were delighted. They were delighted and they agreed to give him the money. <gasps> what a great idea. Meet him in the garden at night, at night in the garden, and then betray him with a kiss. That's how, that's how we'll know that's the one. Betray him with a kiss. I think about that at night, right? Because he can't see at night, so he'd be the one that betrayed by a kiss. When I see these pictures, like the Rembrandt pictures that are period pictures that aren't really from the time, a lot of times they, they have Jesus with that glow over his head. You ever see that? The glow over his head. That's, that's not real at all. Because if it was real in the gospel, what it would say, Judas would say, when I go over to the one that's glowing... That's him. <laughs> that was dark. He went over and kissed him. You know, and that, that was the sign. And that's come like through our culture, hasn't it? Betrayed by a kiss. And so Judas, you know, he got to know that one that ill-gotten gain brings um, little peace. And he did it for 30 pieces of silver, which was foretold in the scriptures. There's prophecy in the scriptures hundreds of years before. It's also the common price for slave is what Jesus was sold for. And then... When he feels bad, he goes to the priests, and what do they do? You see, a priest in the Old Testament and a priest in the New Testament, well, who's a priest in the New Testament? The Scripture says that we're priests in the New Testament, that we're a royal priesthood. We can do what priests do. What do priests do? Priests stand between people and God. And so a priest can stand, if there's a person here, a friend of yours, a co-worker, or a family member, or someone on your team, you can, you can stand in between them and God, and you can go to God on behalf of that person. You can say, Lord, my friend's going through this thing right now, and you know, I'm just praying for him, I'm praying that you open some doors for him, you know, or whatever you're praying for him. And you can pray that to God. And, and being a priest, you can get something from God, and you can bring it to your friend. That's what the priest does. The priest intercedes. And what a great opportunity to be able to just intercede for people, to pray for people. And if you tell people that you'll pray for them, people will always ask you to pray for them. It's kind of interesting. But these guys wouldn't do anything. It was their job to intercede. They did absolutely nothing. They were like, what's that to us? Doesn't mean anything to us. We can't even use that money. Even though it came from them, they wouldn't put it in there. Let's read, the, read on a little bit further. See who else is here. Verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate again, 
okay? So we're back to Pilate. He stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Because here's the charge they're bringing. Caesar is king. If you said anybody other than Caesar is king, it's punishable by death. And they can kill you on the spot. So for them to tell Pilate, this guy said he's a king, and this guy said you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, which Jesus did not say, Pilate knows what's going on. He knows that Jesus isn't trying to usurp Caesar's throne, that he's not a rebel, he's not trying to start a riot. And so Pilate is going to try to get him out. He's going to try to put an end to this thing. And so, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. The governor said, what's the deal? What's the deal? Are you, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it's, you've said it. Jesus replied. And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, because they're there, he gave no answer. It says in the scriptures, when it's prophesying about Jesus in Isaiah 53, it says that as a sheep before his shares is silent, Jesus would be quiet in his answer. Jesus wouldn't respond to accusations. Wasn't going to, and he didn't. And here he is staying quiet. And it's frustrating Pilate. Pilate's trying to work with Jesus so he can release Jesus, and Jesus is staying quiet. So when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, don't you hear what those guys are saying, the testimony they're bringing against you? Work with me. I can get you out of this. Work with me. But Jesus made no reply not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. What are you doing? Like, just, come on. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, it's a common name in the day, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So Jesus would be like Joshua, a very common name in the day. Common name again. People are starting to name kids Joshua. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate's sitting in the judge's seat. And his wife sends him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. So Pilate's wife is calling him innocent. Judas calls him innocent. Pilate's wife, it says she sent him a message. I don't know, was it on a piece of papyrus or what? But I like to think she whispered to him, Pilate, Pilate, don't do anything to that man. He's innocent. I suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. So Pilate, don't do anything, okay? Yeah, don't worry about it. I'll text you. So, um... He's innocent. He's innocent, but he's not saying anything. Pilate's trying to get him off. It says, verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. So now these guys are working the crowd. Now keep in mind, this is when we would celebrate Palm Sunday, and when Jesus comes into town, everybody's praising him and singing, and now a week later, the religious leaders are working everybody up to ask that Jesus would be crucified. See, Pilate's looking for a way out. Why would he offer this deal? Here's what would happen. Jerusalem, again, these people are just like, they, they are at loggerheads with Rome all the time. And so on Passover, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims come into the city of Jerusalem. So, so they bring in all kinds of extra soldiers. They're always waiting for the, the, the city to just go into a major riot. And so one of the things that the governor would do every Passover when all of these people were gathered together is he would offer them the release of a political prisoner. Not unlike what we do with prisoner exchanges, right? We exchange. It's, it's goodwill. We're all good guys. We don't want to keep your prisoners. You know, you give me one, I'll give you one. Mine's not 
you know, whatever, but, you know, they, they exchange these prisoners. And so sometimes they exchange political prisoners so that to appease the people, the poets, the dissidents, let's let them go. And so every year they would take one of these political prisoners and they would say, we just want to get along. We don't want to fight with you guys. You know, let's get along. Let's do good. This, this year I'm going to release this guy back to you. And everybody would be like, yes, yes, yes. And what would that guy do? You know, he'd go right back to his office and go right back to his gang and they'd plan more plots to overthrow Rome. And, and Rome knew it, but they'd let him go. They'd let him go as a gesture of goodwill. And so Pilate's like, I know how I can do this. I know how I can save Jesus. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask them, do they want this notorious criminal, this bum, or do they want Jesus? Which one to do? And he's like, they're going to want Jesus. But the religious leaders work him up and they say, no, crucify Jesus and let the criminal go. And Pilate's like, what? This is crazy. Why are you doing this? What in the world is going on? And so um, he says, which do you want me to do? Verse 21. And they said, Barabbas. He said, what should I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah? What do I do with him? And they said, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What? What are you talking about? Why? What crime has he committed? None. He's innocent. And they shouted all the louder, <clears throat> crucify him. Verse 24, when Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. So the fact that it says that he was getting nowhere lets you into the psychology of what's going on in Pilate's head. Pilate's doing everything that he can do, and he sees that he's getting nowhere. He wants to release this guy. And the chief priests are working everybody up. And he's like, man, I am, I have got nothing to do with this innocent man. And the people said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. So a um, couple of things here. One of them is why can't Pilate get him released? Well, the reason he can't get him released is because something happened a few hours ago in the garden. Jesus goes into the garden and he's facing his death. He's facing the crucifixion for our sins. He's going to die for our sins. And when he's there, he prays to God. And people are like, this is such a strange prayer. And he said, Father, if this cup can pass for me, then let it pass. Well, he comes out of the garden and the cup can't pass. What's the cup? The cup is the crucifixion. That can't pass. There's no way to reconcile human beings to God except through the crucifixion. And so as much as Pilate wants to let him go, this thing is set in stone. This is going to happen. Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to die for our sins. Now, Barabbas, let's look at him for a moment. Barabbas gives us a picture of a cardinal, foundational, essential Christian teaching. If it's an essential, foundational Christian teaching, they call it a doctrine. That's a doctrine. Well, this is the doctrine of what's known as substitutionary death. And Barabbas becomes the first one to experience the benefits of Jesus' substitutionary death, where the innocent dies for the guilty. This is what happened with all of these animals in the Old Testament. The innocent ones were dying for the guilty. Jesus is the innocent one. Judas has said so. Pilate's wife has said so. Pilate has said so. We'll see some more people say, saying so. The innocent one is going to die for the guilty. And so Barabbas is the first guilty one that goes free because of the death of Jesus, the substitutionary death. In fact, a friend of mine, a guy who used to go here, actually plant a church in Florida, Chris Conley. Anybody know Chris Conley? Um, he's going to plant a church in Florida. Um, somebody, somebody asked him one time, what's a Christian? And he said, Barabbas. Exactly. That we went free because of Jesus. How does that work? Let's, let's play with that for a minute. The substitutionary death, Jesus paid my price. What does that mean? Like, how does that work? Anybody here ever get a speeding ticket? Anybody? Anybody want to admit to it? I see heads going, but no hands going up. Nobody wants to. I got a, I got a, 
I got a speeding ticket. I got a couple of speeding tickets. I don't know how many speeding tickets I got, but I got speeding tickets. I got one at the corner of Route 95 and Route 9 near the bridge. Anybody know where that is? Now, I was in this old truck that I had that that truck could not speed. I'm telling you. And so, so he pulled me over and he said, I clocked you at this. I said, you did not clock me at that in this car. I said, there is no way in the world. You got the guy next to me or the guy in front of you or behind me because this car would fall apart if it went that fast. He said, I clocked you at that. I said, you didn't clock me at that. I promise you, you did not clock me at that. He said, you did. I, I said, you didn't. He said, take the ticket and argue it. I said, I am going to take this ticket and argue it. So self-righteous me went to court, waste the whole day. So, so I go there, and this, there's hundreds of people there. With I was amazed at how many people had speeding tickets that were protesting them. And so this lady comes out, and she said, if you were traveling at such and such amount over the speed limit, today we are going to cut that by 50%, just pay your fine. And all these people are like, yes, cut it by 50%, pay the fine. She said, if you were going this fast over the speed limit, and they clocked you with that, then we're going to cut it by a third today. Just take, take the third off and go pay your ticket. And people are like, yes. So everybody's paying their ticket, but not me, because I'm self-righteous. So um, I told her, I said, I, I wasn't speeding, and I'm not going to pay that. And she said, okay. She said, it's not a problem. She said, you can go into the judge. And she said, I know how he works. The first question he's going to ask you is he's going to say, when was the last time that, that you had your odometer calibrated? I said, nobody, nobody calibrates their odometer. She said, oh, but you're going to use that as evidence of how fast you were going. And I said, this isn't fair. She said, hey. She said, it is what it is. She said, let me ask you a question. All right, what? She said, have you ever sped before? I said, what? <laughs> and she said, have you ever gone over the speed limit before? I said, yeah, sure. She said, then just pay the ticket. So, uh, so I paid the ticket. So I, pay, I paid the ticket. But here's how it works. Here's how Jesus paying the price for us in the substitutionary death of Jesus works. Is if I would have gone in and stood before that judge and he fined me, plus she said, plus he'll charge you court fees and it'll be even more. And so if I went there and he found me guilty, if somebody else came in and said, I'm going to pay his ticket, the judge wouldn't say, oh, no, 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 no. No, he needs to pay his ticket. Judge doesn't care where the money comes from, right? If somebody wants to come in and pay my ticket and pay my fine, then that's absolutely fine with the judge. And Jesus decided that he's the only just one. He's the only holy one. He's the only perfect one that's ever lived. He's God in the flesh. He died for my sins, and he paid for my speeding ticket, and he paid for my offenses against God, and he paid for my offenses towards human beings, and he makes me right with God because he paid my price. The substitutionary death of Jesus. And Barabbas, Barabbas is the, this guy here sets him free. Barabbas is the first one to go. He's the first one to experience the substitutionary death of Jesus. He goes free. He should have suffered, but he didn't. So uh, let's go on. Let's see who else is here. Hell, hell, the gang is all here. Verse 27. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. After Jesus had already been flogged, had been up all night long, all this other stuff. And the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him. Oh, that's pretty wild. They stripped him. We have in the lobby there, there's a, a wall of crosses. And there's all kinds of crosses there. There's Celtic crosses and wooden crosses and crosses that are colored things and there are crosses made out of nails and and there's a couple of what they call crucifixes on there and the crucifixes have Jesus on uh, no you can't help me with anything else Siri I'm, I'm squared away so uh, um, a, cru a crucifix has Jesus on the cross and whenever you see that crucifix 
You always see Jesus got this little diaper on there that's like sort of like set nice. Um, not at all. When, when Jesus was hanging on that cross, Jesus was naked on that cross. Jesus was stripped a couple of times by people. The humiliation of Jesus being stripped naked in front of people and publicly. This is why Jesus is able to deal with our shame. Because there are so many people who have experienced that shame where somebody else undressed them. Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus knows what it's like. And Jesus can come to your side and um, in these rooms over the course of the weekend, there's a lot of childhood trauma that comes in and out of these doors. And some of that trauma is related to those kinds of things. And it happened to Jesus as well. And Jesus knows who you are. He loves you. He understands you. He can walk with you. He can heal you. He can share your shame. And he can bring you forward. Jesus resurrected from the dead and can bring us up from the dead. So here's what they're doing to him. They twisted a crown of thorns on his head. I should have brought my thorns that I found in the Garden of Gethsemane that are nasty. Um, they put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, hail, king of the Jews. They spit on him. They took the staff. They struck him on the head again and again. They mocked him. They took the robe, and, they, and then they put his own clothes back on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. So now we deal with the, now we deal with the soldiers that are there. <clears throat> well, these soldiers, number one, they don't want to be in Jerusalem. Nobody wants the Jerusalem assignment. This is just a stinky assignment because it is, it is a, a, a power keg, powder keg just waiting to go off. And they know it. And so somebody's going to get messed up here. Something's going to go wrong. And there's a, there's a lot of names being thrown both ways. The city is loaded with soldiers. They're tough. And these soldiers here... If you were a soldier in the ancient world, when you got deployed, you, you know how long it takes to walk back to your house if your house is 110 miles away from where you're stationed? Like, you're not coming back for the weekend. You're not coming back for the holiday. These guys are gone for a long time. These guys live with each other. They're hardened. They're in Jerusalem. It's tense. You know, things can go really bad here. They don't want to be blamed. And here's Jesus. And these guys are toughened and they're emotionally hardened. They're unfeeling. They're mocking him. It's a tough situation being in Jerusalem that week, that month, really. Who's the next one? So, um, verse 32, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene, because there's pilgrims coming from everywhere to Jerusalem, from all over the place. They're coming from hundreds of miles around, walking. And as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Well, they could do this. This is why Jesus said, if they force you to carry their pack for a mile, do it for two. Because Roman soldiers could conscript anybody when they were moving from town to town. They could take anybody and say, hey, carry my bag for a mile. And you'd have to carry it. And Jesus said, you know, everybody resents that. Nobody likes it when those guys do that. But if they ask you to carry it one mile, carry it two. Carry it two. And if you don't want to carry it all, just start telling them about me. They'll let you go and they'll have somebody else do it. So... Um, He's carrying the cross. They conscripted him to do it. This guy, by chance meeting, meets Jesus. It's a chance meeting. Well, it's not really. It's a divine appointment. But seemingly a chance meeting. And many of us, when we came to know Jesus, it was just a chance meeting. We just ended up in some situation where we're like, what? Who? Wow. Okay. And so he meets Jesus in this chance meeting. Verse 33, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. In Latin, it's Calvaria. We call this place Calvary. This is Skull Chapel. Golgotha. They offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up their clothes by casting lots, his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the charge. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So there you have Simon the Cyrene. Chance meeting Jesus. 
And it seems like there's another Simon that shows up in the book of Romans. And uh, I think it was Aaron that was doing it that week. And, and he said, this might be the same Simon, that, Simon the Cyrene, that, that met Jesus along the way. So who's the next ones? <clears throat> Verse 38. Two rebels, or two robbers, were crucified with him. One on his right, one on his left. Well, this is what the prophecy said. Prophecy said that he would be, in his death, he would be with criminals, and he would be with rich people. Well, which one is? Is he going to be with rich people or are he going to be with criminals? <clears throat> he's going to be with both. Here he's with the criminals. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come and save yourself. Now, you've got to go to the other Gospels. This is, we call this the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew gives us some information about these two guys on either side. The other Gospels give us more information. And one of these guys becomes known as the thief on the cross. And there's one on each side, and Jesus is in the middle, and people are hurling insults at him. And the guys, on the, the guys that are next to him on the cross, they're hurling insults at him as well. And then one of them comes to his senses... I love that phrase. That's in the Bible a few times with the prodigal son and, and in Timothy. It talks about it coming to your senses. This guy comes to his senses and he says to the other guy, he said, hey, wait a minute. He said, we're here because of something we did. And we're being punished because of what we did. And he said, but this guy didn't do anything. So who's declaring Jesus innocent? Judas is. Uh, Pilate's wife is. Pilate, the thief on the cross, all declaring Jesus innocent. And this guy says to Jesus, <clears throat> he says, when you come into your kingdom, because he realizes who he is, and this guy is looking at death. And so when you're looking at death, it, cha it changes, all of the, changes all of the thoughts and the philosophies and the ideas and the arguments that you've had before you're looking at death. I can't tell you the number of people that have been able to just lead to Christ on their deathbed, you know, and going into their room and people say, He'll, he won't listen, believe me, he doesn't listen to anybody, you know, and I just go in and tell them, you know, hey, look, you know, you, you said it's okay for me to come in and you're dying. Um, and here's the way it works with Jesus and Jesus promises to give you eternal life. If you just trust him, do you want to trust him? Absolutely. You know, and I used to have this thing, the four spiritual laws, where you would like sign it, you know, and I used to have people that are dying sign it, come out and give it to their kids. And they're like, what? Dad did that? Yeah. You know, and then so this guy realizes that he is close to death. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, oh, boy, you didn't you didn't take the catechism class, did you? <laughs> oh, boy, you know, they had Christianity 101 on the Internet. You know, um, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You and me. You and me, we're going together. How's that? The guy's like, good, man. Good. So, and he declares Jesus innocent. But then there's these other people. Here's the passerbys. Uh, verse 38, they passed by, they hurled insults at him. And they said, you're going to you who said you're going to destroy the temple in three days. He was talking about his body. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. Then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. He said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels were crucified with him, heaped insults on him. But then the other Gospels tell us this guy came to his senses. Came to his senses. And then you have the passerbys, right? The ones that are... And then you get this centurion. Let's watch this guy. From noon until three in the afternoon. That's why on Good Friday, the Friday that's coming up, and a lot of people have Good Friday off. They still, uh, they still keep that as a holiday in a lot of places. The schools do. Um, a lot of the schools really don't want Jesus in the schools anymore but they really want to keep the holidays. <laughs> just saying, I'm not making, you know, I'm just say, just observing, you know. We will give up Christmas when you, you know, 
pry it from our dead cold hands. So, you know, um, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Because sin is coming on him. And when some of those who were standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar and he put it on a staff and he offered it to Jesus to drink. And they said, no, 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 no. Let's see if Elijah comes. Let's see like if angels come. Let's, uh, let's wait, don't do that. And when Jesus had cried out again with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus gave it up. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, which long story, but it opens the way to God for us. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs opened up. The bodies of many holy people who had died had been raised to life. Wow, that's crazy. And it came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many, many people. Now you find this in Acts 2 when Peter is preaching and he said, you know, you guys know what happened in Jerusalem because some of you people talked to these people. And they were like, yes, what must we do to be saved? So verse 54, when the centurion, the guy who is over 100 troops, he's a tough guy. When the centurion and those with him, some of the soldiers, some of the 100, when the centurion and those with him, who they've seen deaths before, and they've seen crucifixions before, when they saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. They're saying people don't die this way. This isn't how people die. The way that this guy died and everything that happened, this guy was the son of God. So the religious leaders are coming against him. Who's saying that he's innocent? Judas says that he's innocent. Pilate's wife says that he's innocent. Pilate says that he's innocent. The thief on the cross say that he's innocent. The centurion says that this guy is the son of God. This is who he is. One other guy. Actually, a couple more. Uh, real quick, though. Um, verse 55, many women were there. Many women were there watching at a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs, and among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, the mother of Zebedee's sons. Where are all the guys? All the guys split. Peter, in the account, Jesus said, you know, it's written in the Scripture that you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And Peter said, Lord, even if all of these other jokers, even if they all desert you, I'll never desert you. And Jesus was like, Peter, it's like in the scriptures. <laughs> so <laughs> you're going to scatter. <laughs> and so they scatter, but the ladies stay. The ladies stay and the ladies are there. I love the faithfulness of these ladies. I love the whole idea of, of faithfulness of women. Through, through the ages and to, to, to today, just a faithful women. So there they are. Which one are you? You know, are we you know, the religious fanatics? Are we the women that are still following Jesus faithfully? Are we, you know, Judas, you know, the greedy one? You know, what can I get out of this? Uh, are, we the, are we the one that's coming to the Lord at the light? You know, which one, which one are we? Um, one more guy. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea. His name was Joseph. And he himself had become a disciple of Jesus. So he's coming out of the closet. He'd been a, he'd been a believer in Jesus. He's, uh, he's part of that whole circle of Sanhedrin and elders and guys that are making decisions. And he's finally, he's finally the one who's he's like, you know what, I'm not going to follow this pack anymore. Like, these guys are crazy what they're doing. Like, Jesus is who he says he is. I'm, I'm breaking ranks with those guys. And so he does. Joseph of Arimathea, who owns this tomb right here. You today, you can still go to Jerusalem, and that tomb is there. There was an archaeologist about 100 years ago from Britain who he was studying where that tomb might be, and he said, you know, it would be right over there. And they did some excavations, and sure enough, they found the garden, and they found, they found the tomb. You can go in that tomb. I've been in that tomb several times, and we've brought people from the church that have gone in that tomb with us and then have come out of it just like Jesus comes out of it. And so it would belong to Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple. And he's connected and he's rich. Verse 58, he goes to Pilate. 
Now he can just go in and see Pilate. He can just go see the governor. Most of us here probably can't go see the governor, right? Like go into a parking lot and just pull out your, pull out your phone and on speed dial call the governor and tell him you want something done. Well, he could. He was connected. And so he went to Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. And so Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he placed it in his own new tomb that had been cut out with a rock. There it is. And he rolled a big stone in front of it. The stone is gone. The stone's not there anymore. Rolled a big stone in front of the entrance and he went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. They watched where it happened. And I can't help but say it like every time we talk about that tomb, when Joseph's family said to him, you know, what are you doing giving your tomb to that guy? Like, you don't really know him. Like, why would you give him that tomb? And Joseph said, it's just for the weekend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but here's the deal. It's just not... The important part, like look for yourself in here, the important part is not the people involved, but the person involved. And who's the person involved? Jesus. It's, it's all about Jesus. We're talking about, we're talking about Jesus, the person of Jesus. So the band's going to come up. We're going to have some communion. There's, um, I'll explain this communion to you. Everybody take one. Um, and we'll explain it to you. Could a couple of people come up and get it on each side and just pass these out? And this is um, one of the things that Jesus said to do in remembrance of me. He said, do this to remember what happened. So do this to remember this particular account that we just looked at. What account? Jesus dying for us. So um, we're going to reenact it a little bit. We um, do different things with communion. In this particular time, we're just going to try to remember what he did for us. And again, so um, this whole idea of Barabbas, Barabbas being the first one to experience in real time the substitutionary death of Jesus, that Jesus took his place. And what the Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians is he tells us what happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed. On the Passover, they would take this, they would have this meal, and Jesus took bread and he broke it, and he passed it to his disciples. And he said that this is my body which is given to you. The word there is Eucharist. He gave thanks. And he passed it to his disciples. And the picture there that they understood in the Middle East, which we don't always understand necessarily when we have meals together is they were a little particular in who they had meals with because the idea of sharing a meal with somebody meant that you were sharing life with them. Not just a power lunch, but you're sharing life. And when Jesus breaks his bread, he said, this is my body which is given for you. We're sharing the life of Jesus. And we're remembering that we share the life with Jesus. And we remember that we weren't always connected to God, that we were disconnected to God. We all, like sheep, had gone our own way and we were doing whatever we did. Either we were actively rebelling against God, which I did, or we were just passively apathetic about it. Whatever. Whatever. Or we were philosophical about it and came up with particular little arguments that fit us well. But we were separated from God, and so we remember that on the cross, Jesus is reconciling people to God, making that relationship good again. Because God is, see, we like to talk about forgiveness and grace here. Because God is totally forgiving. He's totally full of grace. But God is 100% about justice. 100% about justice. As was that lady that told me, pay the fine. 100% about justice. So God can't just let justice go. 
the price has to be paid. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price. Justice has been answered. Justice has been fulfilled. And so at the cross, amazing thing happens at the cross. At the cross, mercy, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God and the justice of God kiss at the cross. They're brought together. Jesus, the righteous one. The just one. Makes it possible for the mercy of God to be poured out upon us the goodness of God to be poured out upon us, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth to be reconciled to people because of what Jesus has done for us. So on that last night, and we're doing the remembrance thing, which Jesus said to do, do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread that somebody took this bread somehow and broke it up. It came from one place and and it's given to us to eat. And when we eat, we're saying that we are sharing life with Jesus. And we're also sharing life with each other. So we're doing it vertically with God. And we're doing it horizontally with the other people of God. Sharing life with one another. Encouraging one another. To faith and to good works. That's why we gather together. Let's encourage each other to faith and good works. I hardly understand the faith. That's all right. That's why we're here. Let's understand it better. I don't do any good work. I just do bad stuff. Well, let's do good stuff. Let's encourage us. Let's encourage each other. And so we take the bread. And let's eat it together. we get to the other side of it, the cup, the blood of Jesus Christ, remembering that he died on that cross, that he suffered and he bled for me, he bled for you. Now here's the thing, this is really kind of a believer's ritual, so Believers do it to remember what Jesus did for us, reminding ourselves. But if you're not a believer, should you do it? Um, yeah, probably not. But um, if you're not a believer, why don't you just open this thing and swallow it? The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. What a better way to confess with your mouth than to just say, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a partaker the blood of Jesus. He died for me. So to Jesus, to Jesus. Lord, we are thankful that you, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth, have bowed to us and made it possible, Lord, for us to know God again. Made it possible, Lord, to have the, the years that the locusts have eaten, Lord, you're going to restore in our lives. Lord, for a lot of us, the locusts have devastated our fields have eaten everything in the path. And Lord, you're promising to restore. You're promising a life of restoration. Lord, for some of us, it's just been generations of craziness. And you're promising us new life. You're promising us being born again. You're promising us starting all over again. Lord, for some of us, we've just done reprehensible things. Things that we've never even told anybody about. And then you come, Lord, by your blood and by your grace, and you forgive us, and you promise to transform us. You promise to move us out of this stuff, move us out of these self-destructive behaviors, move us out of this insanity into the kingdom of your Son, into clear thinking. And so, Lord, thanks for making us new. Thanks for letting us start over. Lord, thanks that this is the beginning, the beginning of forever, Lord, the beginning of eternity. So for those who haven't, Lord Jesus, I just, I'm making you my, my Savior and my Lord. And I know I'm just starting bringing in like so much garbage and so much stuff, but here I come. 
I know you forgive me. I know that you love me. I know that you'll be the one that sticks closer than a brother. I don't know where you're going to make me, but I know that's going to be good. I'm happy to leave behind the old, and I'm happy to walk in the new. So thanks for your love. Thanks for your grace. So may the Lord bless you, and may the Lord keep you, and may the Lord make his face shine upon you. May you find yourself walking in new life, being transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit in you. Let's stand.